Richard Branson is known for bold new ventures and snatching success from the jaws of ruin. He credits some of his achievements with his willingness to not avoid risk, but instead to say yes to opportunities when they come along. He once wrote this on his company blog, if someone offers you an amazing opportunity but you're not sure you can do it, say yes, then learn how to do it later. I guess that's how you go from selling records to building spaceships, right? Paul and his partners were the kinds of people who were willing to face risk for the opportunity to glorify God and advance the gospel. And because they made decisions according to the leading of the Holy Spirit, they were able to find remarkable opportunities wherever they were. They could be in Asia or Europe or the Holy Land. They could be among many or few in the courts of a governor or down by the riverbank. No matter the circumstances, we see them saying yes to God, sometimes having to figure things out as they go. But this is one of the most wonderful parts of the book of Acts, and it should make us smile to see again and again. Now, when it comes to serving God and living a dynamic Christian life, there is no necessary ingredient that you have to first find and apply to yourself other than the filling of the Holy Spirit. There's no essential prerequisite when we think of that in a human term. No specific formula that you have to memorize and learn and, and figure out how to work together. Living a dynamic Christian life isn't like one of those awesome Rube Goldberg machines that has all these weird pieces and things going this way and things going that way and all those sorts of things. And sometimes I think we think, you know, I've got to figure it out before God's going to start using me or before I'm going to have a dynamic Christian life or before I feel near to God. Certainly, if we consult the Christian bookstores, that seems to be the case. It seems to be that not only do many Christian authors, but also the, the market, right? The consumers are looking for some secret, some answer, some formula, some shopping list that if we lay hold of this, well, then we'll be able to be real Christians who are really used by God, who are really honoring God. But the book of Acts explodes all of that. It takes anyone in any situation, in any circumstance, from any background, and can use any of those people to do incredible, eternal things. The one prerequisite, the one requirement for the Christian is to be Spirit-filled, is to be led by the Holy Spirit. And that should make us smile as we see this. You're alone on a desert road? Well, that sounds like a great way to start revival in Ethiopia. What? You're, <laughs> you're uh, you know, uh, stuck in a dungeon, all bloodied and bruised, tied to the ground? That sounds like a perfect way to inspire countless millions of human beings throughout human history. That's what God can do. At the same time, the devil keeps himself involved in the process. He was just as much an adversary to Paul and his friends as he had been from the beginning with Adam and Eve. And he is, of course, just as much our adversary today. He works many schemes to bring opposition into our lives and to the work of Jesus Christ. But one of the great comforts shown in Acts and throughout the Bible is that what the devil intends for opposition, God can use as an opportunity. We see that power on display as we begin a very significant story, which I already alluded to, the uh, dungeon night in Philippi. That story is going to culminate in a magnificent act of God, an astonishing statement from an unbelieving jailer, a fantastic turning of the tables, 
Most of us are very familiar with the last half of the chapter. But first, to get there, well, we're going to have to tell a different story. Not so magnificent. In fact, it's a sad and sorry tale, a tale of human trafficking, of injustice, of prejudice, of real hardship and suffering for God's faithful servants. But once again, we'll see that no matter the situation or the circumstances, you and I as Christians can be used by God and further his work, even if it just means in one life, just one life at a time. As we begin, our brothers find themselves in the Roman colony of Philippi, which is in modern-day Greece, and they've been preaching the good news of salvation to the people there. Verse 16 is where we're starting. Acts 16, verse 16. Once, as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. I'm sort of comforted by the setup here because, as I said, most of us are familiar with what's about to unfold both immediately in our verses and then in the long night ahead with the Philippian jailer and all that follows. But for all their spirituality and their spiritual power and everything, for you know, all of their apostleness, you know, Paul and company still couldn't predict what was about to happen. Yeah, it, it's really hard for us to not think of a, a, a man like Paul or Silas or Dr. Luke or Timothy and not think of them as the Jedi masters, right? That they have tapped into, you know, something that the rest of us will never hope to. Now, obviously, it's true that they were wholly devoted to God. They were deeply mature. They were saturated in the scriptures. I'm not making light of that, that they're the same as, you know, a baby Christian, but we have to understand that God's not a respecter of persons in that regard. Of course, his callings are different. None of you or none of us in this room are ever going to be called to be an apostle. That's done, right? That was a special calling for a select group of people. But as far as living a dynamic Christian life and being used by God to change the world and change our community and change people's eternal destinies, he doesn't set aside special reserves or special artillery for Paul and nothing for the rest of us or cap guns for the rest of us, right? That's the idea. And what do we see here? Paul's the kind of guy that can raise the dead. Paul's the kind of guy who's been raised from the dead. He's doing miracles. He's writing scripture. He's doing all this stuff. Did he know what was going to happen that day? Not at all. He's just flowing with the Spirit. He's just rolling with it. He's just saying, well, we're here in Philippi. Here's my purpose. Here's the way that we operate. Here's our goal in the Great Commission. So let's go ahead and do that. And what do we see here? They were walking by faith, just like we're called to walk by faith. They thought they were headed to prayer that morning. In reality, they were headed into a problem. Turned out to be a pretty significant problem. That was their plan. They didn't open up their planners that day and say, okay, today we're going to encounter this slave girl and we're going to end up casting out this demon and then we'll move from there. They said, let's go to prayer. But they never got there. There was a problem instead. As usual, when they were presented with opposition or just a change of plans, they weren't derailed by it. They weren't paralyzed by it. They were able to adapt and respond in a flexible way. And that's part and parcel with the Christian life. Some things really require flexibility. There's no such thing as a gymnast who isn't flexible. You know, I'm a great gymnast, but I just, man, I just I can't touch my toes. Well, then you're not a gymnast. You're not a ballerina if you're not flexible, right? Now, in spiritual matters, we cannot predict what the day holds, or right now, tonight, we cannot predict what the night holds. Whether it's a prayer or a problem coming up, harvest or hostility, we can be confident that there will be things that stand in the way, right? 
Sometimes we have smoother sailing in life than other times, but we can be confident that eventually there will be temptation arising, opposition, resistance of some form or another. But we don't need to fear those things or be paralyzed by them because we know that our God is greater than all of those things and that he also can not only overcome those things, but he can turn those things into opportunities to accomplish eternal good. But the reality is, as you all know, in life, particularly in our spiritual efforts, things don't always go as planned, and that's okay. Keep moving, keep trusting the Lord, seek his will and his guidance in the situation. Now, let's take a look at this girl for a minute. In Luke's description of her, it's obvious to everyone around her that she was possessed by some otherworldly spirit. Now, we know it was a demon. The pagans around her thought it was the python spirit. There was a thing that happened in that region, and they believed that there were certain priestesses or certain people who had the python spirit. It has to do with their worship of the god Apollo and some of his mythology. Since she was such a lucrative business for her masters, it seems that she was actually successful, at least on some level, in telling people's fortunes and telling them the future. What are we to make of that? Listen, if she was wrong all the time, word would spread, and she wouldn't make any money for her masters. The fact that she made great deals of money for them indicates something to us. Uh, in the Bible, we see that demonic spirits have pretty significant power. They're super intelligent. Uh, they're able to do pretty remarkable things, some of which fall outside of our limited boundaries of space and time as human beings. For example, the demons in the Gospels could take one look at Jesus when he walked up, who was by all accounts nondescript, just another guy in the crowd, and they immediately knew you're the Holy One of God. He didn't tell them. In fact, he said, stop saying that. They saw him and they could see through the flesh, as it were, and, and see his deity. How were they able to do that? We don't know. I don't think they were passing around a mugshot of Jesus at their, you know, demon meetings, wherever they have those. But they immediately knew who he was. They knew what he was about. The Bible teaches that Satan and his demons can influence the minds of human beings. They can know things about things that tempt human beings, those sorts of things. Of course, they are not all-powerful. They're not omnipresent. They're not all-knowing, not in any way, shape, or form. Only God is those things. But it seems that either through some sort of limited revelation or by super intelligence, this demon in this girl was able to at least somewhat accurately tell fortunes. So while we don't live in a particularly occultic culture, at least not in this sense, no one that I know is paying to go like see a slave girl, like go into a weird snake trance and give them information. Although, I mean, we have those kinds of places, right? Madame Sophia on the 99 has been there as long as I can remember the place in town, right? I mean, so those things do exist, but you know, our culture isn't at least on the surface quite as occult as this yet, but demonic activity is real. Demon possession still happens. The devil is still doing stuff. And it's not all fake. These are super powerful beings. We get glimpses of the kinds of things these kinds of beings can do in the Bible, whether that's demons or we look at what angels can do, right? And we see that they have a different set of boundaries when it comes to space and time and power and those sorts of things than we do. Setting aside the supernatural aspect for a moment, this poor girl is kind of a good picture of the enslavement of sin. 
You know, people out in the world don't realize that sin is a destructive tyrant, that it consumes and that it makes sport of people trapped under its power. They think, well, I'm just, you know, trying to get ahead or I'm just having a little bit of pleasure. I'm just seeking the riches of the world or I'm doing whatever. I'm going my own way. When in reality, on a spiritual level, this is who they are, this poor girl. On the one hand, she seems to have this fantastic ability, right? Bankable skills. Hey, honey, let's go down and get some life advice from that one girl. Which one? You know, the one enslaved to those guys downtown. The one who's in weird fits of, of, of trance and, and is tormented by some weird spirit. Let's go ask her what she thinks about life. If she could tell the future, why can't she escape and become her own boss, right? But the truth is, from the Christian perspective, you know, we understand what's happening, that sin and the trappings of sin have hold, held her captive and that she was held captive by the devil in more ways than one. But we have to understand that people out there, outside of the church, outside of God's flock, are desperately trapped with no hope. This girl has no hope. Her life is sad and disgusting and horrifying if, if we look at it just sort of empirically. And on the one hand, you have people out there who think they're living in pleasure or think that they have power or think they have some sort of bankable skill. And we need to look at them and realize, you know, what you really are is without hope, held captive by the devil. And he's making sport of you, consuming you and exploiting you until you die. And so we want to remember how desperately trapped people are. Sin does to unbelievers what we see happening to this girl. Maybe not outright demon possession, but they're still captive, still being slowly exploited to death with no hope unless someone rescues them. We want to be part of the liberation effort. And so it's really difficult, especially in some regards, to not get angry and upset at the things that non-believers do the kinds of things they do in our culture, the kinds of things they do in our communities. I understand all of that, but on a deeper spiritual level, we need to pity these sorts of people and realize that, hey, these people are this girl with no hope and they are inches away from a new Christless eternity in hell. They need to be rescued and we need to help liberate them. Verse 17 says, as she followed Paul and us, she cried out, these men who are proclaiming to you a way of salvation are the servants of the most high God. She did this for many days. Hold there. When you can't beat them, join them, right? Whether it was in the synagogues, in the gospels, or here in the prayer meeting in Acts, we learn that Satan has no problem going to church. He's got a lot of strategies. He's willing to do whatever he can to tear down the Lord's work, whether that's from without, whether that's from within, He'll, he'll do whatever he wants to do in that regard. Now, back with Paul and company, not only do you not want to be endorsed by demons, imagine the impact that this situation might have on the new converts there in Philippi. Wait a minute. I thought you've been telling us that we need to turn from paganism and live a very different kind of life. But if there's no disagreement between you and the Python girl here, do we really need to be that unpagan after all? Right? I mean, if you are a brand new Christian in Philippi, you're the kind of person who went and paid this girl a few minutes ago, a few weeks ago. You were going to these weird temples doing all sorts of weird things. And then these guys come along and talk to you about how to be cleansed from your sin and how you can live a life, you know, with Jesus Christ as your savior. But if this girl agrees, well, can't I have the best of both worlds? 
can't I also get, you know, the Powerball numbers from this girl while also having my sins washed at the cross? I mean, that would be a a, a difficult hurdle for a moment there if you were a brand new Christian there in Philippi. Or some might think, oh, okay, you've been talking to us about the filling of the Holy Spirit. I get it. Is, Is it the same as the way the Python spirit takes hold of this girl and makes her say and do weird stuff? Is that the filling I should be expecting? Should I expect to be possessed by God, the Holy Spirit, and flop around and foam at the mouth and do these sorts of weird things? So there's lots of problems here. It's not just about not wanting to be endorsed by a demon, which of course is a bad problem, but there's a lot going on here. Now we note that this kept happening day after day, which means that Paul and the guys were showing a great deal of patience and grace. Based on what we know of these Python priestesses historically in that area, she was probably doing really weird, disruptive stuff. They weren't a calm crowd. Um, They were doing weird, strange, you know, ritualistic occult things. But the guys, you know, Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy, they're long-suffering like their Lord. They didn't throw her out. They didn't fight her off. Why didn't they just exercise her on the first day? Just cast the demon out. It seems to be the solve. We see it's going to be the solve in a minute here. So just do it. Well, this is one of the many passages which expose the fact that godly miracles or miraculous gifts, gifts of healings or exorcisms, those sorts of things, which are still for today, they are not powers that Christians wield at will. It's not like Superman's laser vision. When I need my laser vision, I turn it off. And when I don't need my laser vision, you know, or turn it on and turn it off. Miracles were and are special outpourings that happen according to God's will and God's timing and God's purpose, not ours. And this is a big problem when you look at modern faith healers, lots of modern lucrative faith healers in the West today. I was on the website for a very prominent one the other day. All of his events have been canceled due to COVID. (laughs) You can't make that up. I don't mean to make fun, but it's funny. But you can go back, big mistake, you can go back and backdate his schedule. And there throughout 2019, you could see how on this date, he was going to be in a certain city for a healing service. And then a few weeks later, he's going to be in a different city for a miracle service. And it was all scheduled out, uh, nice and neat. That's not how it works. What did, what did Han Solo say? That's not how the force works. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. That's not how the gifts of healings work. That's not how it works in the New Testament ever. If anything, that individual and those faith healers who operate that way are behaving more like the girl and her wicked masters who are doing these sorts of things for profit than the apostles were. So why didn't they exercise her on the first day? Because the Lord didn't allow them to do so because the Lord didn't fill their hearts with the ability to exercise that demon. Why he wanted to wait day after day after day, uh, that is God's business, not ours. Verse 18 continues, Paul was greatly annoyed. Turning to the spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. So she kept disrupting and distracting and causing a scene. One source gives it to us this way. Paul was thoroughly worn out with annoyance. And so under God's leading and power, he casts the demon out. This is an example to us of a few principles, at least. First, we see here a great demonstration of be angry and do not sin, right? Paul was upset, rightfully so, but his response wasn't ungodly. His response wasn't sinful. He didn't sin. He didn't go over and smack her in the face and say, I just can't take it anymore. 
He would later be the one to say, be angry and do not sin to the Ephesians. And so it's great to see him living it out uh, right here. But a second principle we can take to heart is this. While grace is the way, grace is the direction we're pointed in, grace is the method we use, grace is the lifeblood of Christian ministry, that doesn't mean that we always show grace at the expense of everything and everyone else, right? We don't need to be scared of that. We just need to understand that there comes a point where enough grace has been poured out in this situation and it was time for the disruptions to stop. There was a moment. So they were very patient. They were very long-suffering. They were very gracious. They allowed this girl to keep coming to the meetings day after day after day and they were preaching the gospel even though she's doing weird stuff. So they show a lot of grace, but then it came to a point where it needed to stop. In this case, putting a stop to the disruption meant exercising a demon. And it was very simple and matter of fact, no holy water, no crucifix, just a faith and truth and the authority of Jesus Christ. But as we live out the Christian life, focused on grace, grace is the way, and we live out our callings, there are times when grace needs to give way for the sake of others. Here are just a couple of practical examples you know, that I thought of. First, in parenting, if you're a Christian parent here tonight, you're called to train up your kids and to love them and to teach them about the Lord and to show them the difference between right and wrong and all of those things. And you're to do so with the kind of grace that God shows us. That's lots and lots and lots and lots of grace, right? But at some point, a tantrum has to be dealt with. At some point, we need to stop and disrupt the disruption, right? That makes sense to us. That's common sense. We don't just keep pouring out patient grace at the expense of everything and everyone else, right? Or let's think about it on a church level. In the church, we believe in the importance of the reading and the preaching of God's word. We believe that it matters. We believe that it has power. We believe that it changes lives. If there's someone causing a disturbance, whether innocently or not, on and on, over and over, we're to show grace and long suffering to those people, but at some point, those disturbances need to end so as not to damage the rest of the people in attendance, right? And at some point, if someone is being a disruption week after week, minute after minute, just going on and on and on disrupting, what if the person three seats down from them is a non-believer who needed to hear the gospel and instead all they heard was your disruption? All they heard was you shaking your keys or your baby shaking your keys, right? That's the idea. So on the one hand, we don't want to be uh, uh, completely without grace. On the other hand, we can't just always allow grace to be the only thing that we utilize in the way that we do things. So for example, we're reading, uh, rereading Little House in the Big Woods with the kids. And Pa Ingalls talks about when he went to church as a boy. Sunday, you were not allowed to play. You were not allowed to smile. You were not allowed to talk while walking to church. When you went to church, you sat motionless, staring forward. You did not speak. You did not make noise. If you did, you were physically punished for it, right? That's not grace. That's not the way Jesus did things. That's not the way that the Lord acted around children, right? On the other hand, if you have just bedlam all the time, 
and that there is no regard for the uh, importance of the preaching of God's word or the teaching of God's word. And yeah, let whatever people, you know, let kids crash their cars in the back of the sanctuary every single Sunday. That's just going to cause a real problem, right? And eventually, people are going to be so distracted that they're unable to hear the word of God. I think you're probably with me on that. And so we want to have a good balance, always pointed in the direction of grace, but also keeping the greater whole in mind. Verse 19 says, when her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. We think of demon possession as particularly dark and evil and horrifying, and certainly it is, no doubt about that. But think for a minute about how wicked these men are. They had enslaved some poor girl, subjected her to torments unspeakable, exploited her suffering day after day for their own personal gain. And now seeing that she was free from that hell on earth, their instant desire was violent revenge. If you had to have lunch with either her or these dudes, I think maybe you have lunch with her. I mean, these are some black-hearted sinners here. Sin is a vile poison that turns men into monsters. We need to recognize that and be wary of it and call sin what it is. There are some pursuits in this life that enrich people through the exploitation of others. Still happens today. For example, modern day example. You'll sometimes hear it said that, well, pornography has no victims. That's absolutely not true. It has many victims, including the viewer. But As an industry, it is built off of exploitation. It is built off of the ruin of individuals. We don't want to have anything to do with an industry like that, right? Aside from the commands of Scripture about uh, the kinds of images that we put into our minds and the kinds of things that we look at, uh, you know, that is just an example of a whole industry built off of exploitation and the ruin and suffering of other individuals. At the same time, there are other industries in the world today where it's kind of a gray area when it comes to exploitation. There are hard issues when it comes to things like third world sweatshops or children working in factories overseas, those sorts of things. Those, those are hard issues that we kind of need to think about and not just turn a blind eye to. Now, it's really hard to avoid uh, any, let's pick child labor. It, it's pretty well impossible to live a normal life without having some product that a kid helped make, right? Now, it's not always just as easy as, well, the kid made it, so that's bad. In many situations, you know, researchers and economists will tell you, yeah, but if that kid didn't have that job, he starves to death, right? We don't want to work in the factory that the little child in Vietnam is working in, but it's not always super easy to decide, is this exploitation? Is this slavery, right? I mean, these are some kind of hard issues, but they're real issues. And so what's the answer for us? Well, the answer is for us to seek the Lord and be tender to his leading and ask him to show us what our liberties are and what our liberties aren't in this life. And I can't tell you what those are, but he can And so we just want to be careful that our hearts aren't becoming anything like these men in verse 19. We don't want to have any similarity to them. We want to keep our hearts tender and soft before the Lord so that the Lord can say, I actually want you to do this and that we are ready to say yes to him. 
not, not just blind to suffering or blind to exploitation or blind to anything like that. And the answer for some of these difficult questions is just to go before the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? What is my area of liberty? We think so often of liberty in, the, in terms of things that we consume, you know, eat and drink and those sorts of things, and that's fine, that's good. But there's a lot of areas of liberty, and we would all do well to just go before the Lord and say, Lord, what are my liberties? What are the things that you would have me do, and what are the things you would have me not do? Uh, and so I just encourage all of us, myself included, uh, to do that with the Lord. Why weren't Luke and Timothy dragged through the streets as well? No idea. Verse 20, bringing them before the chief magistrates, magistrates, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and they are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. We know that this was really about money, but these guys couldn't really claim that, right? The magistrates would have had to have said, well, go get a new enslaved Python girl. What does that have to do with us? So they start with a lie. The city's seriously disturbed. There's an uproar. That wasn't true. What about their second charge that the Christians were promoting illegal customs, that they were breaking the law? This might apply to us tonight. Well, in, <laughs> in Rome, it was illegal to introduce new gods and religions. One reference states this, the Romans would indeed allow foreigners to worship their own god, but not unless it were done secretly so that the worship of foreign gods would not interfere with the allowed worship of the Romans. Naturally, this was not a law or rule that the Christians had any interest in following. They weren't revolutionaries in the political sense, but their affiliation to Christ and his law superseded all other things. And that needs to be true of us, right? God certainly does not call us to overthrow our government, but if you're a Christian, then you have a king and his name is Jesus. That's your king, right? After him, there are leaders and rulers who have been established by God and we have a responsibility to. And they have certain amounts of authority in this world. As a Christian, God's word is your law. After that, there are laws of the land, laws of the nation, laws of the state, laws of the county, laws of the city. If any of those conflict with God's law, they are not to be followed. As a Christian, your life is pledged to Jesus and his will. After that, you may be affiliated in citizenship or fraternity in some group here on the earth, but our relation to the Savior King is first, foremost, and final when it comes to your rule of life. That doesn't mean that we are supposed to renounce our American citizenship. Paul certainly did not renounce his Roman citizenship. In fact, he's going to use it very carefully in some cases. But Paul never walked around thinking, I'm a Roman. He didn't. He thought, I'm a servant, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, they were promoting customs that were unlawful. They were unlawful for Romans, but we're Christians. And what we're doing is exactly lawful according to the commands of our king and his rule of law. And so that's an important distinction. God has given us truths and laws and customs and a way of life. These are not only to be lived privately, but shared and preached publicly. And if the world around us rises in opposition, we need not fear because God is with us and he has overcome the world. What good news. These human traffickers here close with the epithet, they are Jews. There's been anti-Semitism as long as there has been as descendants of Abraham in this context, 
We know that the Emperor Claudius at the time had issued a decree to throw all the Jews out of Rome. And so there was sort of a high tide, a wave of prejudice against the Jews throughout the empire. They were leveraging that. One more note before we move on. You see a lot of shouting in this passage, shouting from these guys, shouting from the demon-possessed girl. Let's not be people who are angrily shouting at others, either literally or digitally. Let's not. The Christian is meant to be a peacemaker. We are meant to be meek and kind and generous and patient and slow to anger. Why? Because our Lord is, and he commands us to do the same. We're called to meekness. We're called to grace. We're called to be peacemakers. It's very easy to become a shouting maniac, uh, and it's encouraged in our day and age today. It's not something the Lord wants us to do. Verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. This was a horrible and humiliating thing. Stripped naked, these two men were beaten without mercy. You know, Rome had no boundary like the Jews had. Uh, they, the Jews wouldn't flog you more than 39 times. They, they said 40 is the limit, so they never went past 39. The Romans would and go as long as they pleased. Paul, it seems, felt that of his many sufferings, this one was particularly bad. Uh, we have that long list in, in the epistles of all the things that he suffered, horrible things. And remember, we've seen him stoned to death. But once talking about this scene, he described it in his letter to the Thessalonians, and he says, man, we were shamefully treated in Philippi. It was outrageous, he said. Uh, so probably pretty awful. Again, let's imagine what a new convert to the faith might have thought that day. Wait a minute. This is what Jesus allows to happen to his apostles? But we know that these people in Philippi were rooted and grounded in real truth, and therefore suffering like this would neither surprise them nor drive them from the faith. We want to have a Christian faith rooted in the truth of God's revelation, not in styles, not in personalities, not in comforts, not in trends, but in truth. That's what leads to a robust storm-ready faith. Storms are coming. Difficulty is coming, maybe in the form of persecution, maybe just in the form of regular old suffering. But God does allow his people to suffer. He promises you and I are going to suffer. That doesn't need to drive us from the faith. It should just drive us into his arms. And we see that happening here. These new Christians in Philippi, when they get out of the jail finally, he doesn't say, and they went to the church and everybody was gone because they thought, I'm hanging it up. The church was there and they were thriving because they were rooted in the truth of God's word. When we see Christians and churches losing court cases in the era of COVID, it's happening more and more as we have been recently. We can think back to this scene and remember that injustice is nothing new. Our hope has never been in the courts anyway. Verse 23, after they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. Dr. Luke saw what they had suffered and he said, this was severe. They're in bad shape. If your doctor walks into the room and he says, it's bad. <laughs> then it's really bad. And indeed, they were in bad shape. When believers around us are suffering, let's resist the urge to just dismiss it or make light of it or just say, oh, God will take care of that. A lot of suffering is incredibly severe, unbearably severe. And so remember, we're called to weep with those who weep. Luke and Timothy weren't allowed to help out in any way. They weren't even allowed to wash the wounds of their friend. The jailer is going to have to do that later in the morning. 
Instead, Paul and Silas were swiftly dragged into a dark dungeon. There's a similar prison that can be seen in Rome. It's described this way. The cell there is damp and cold from which the light was excluded and where the chains rusted on the prisoners. The devil from his vile throne was probably pretty pleased with himself. His plan to infiltrate hadn't quite worked, but though he lost possession of one pawn, the girl, it seems he had taken out a few nights along the way. No more teaching or preaching for them, not, an even, not even any more standing or walking or talking. They, they're stuck in the dark. What are they going to do? Of course, we know that his opposition was going to be shaped into one of history's greatest opportunities for the light of the gospel to shine in and change the world forever. These things were possible because God was using people who lived with high standards of grace and humility and meekness and truth and flexibility. No one chooses flogging, but if it comes, we can still trust our Lord who loves us and it can use us in any circumstance, desert road or the stocks in the dungeon. Uh, let's say yes to him today, tomorrow, and in every opportunity we find himself in, ourselves in, trusting him and knowing he has power, he has a plan, he has great love for us, and he will not leave us or abandon us.